It's often been said that you could get the world's population onto the Isle of Wight. And 20 years ago, here on Afton Down, it seemed that they were trying hard to prove it. The island didn't sink for Bob Dylan in 1969, and it stood up pretty well when almost half a million people came here to Afton on August Bank Holiday 1970. Whether they knew it at the time, they were making history. And for one weekend, the Isle of Wight was the centre of the world. It was one of the largest human gatherings ever. They witnessed legendary artists from rock, folk, jazz and blues music. Never again would such a festival be allowed to occur. It was the start of a decade, but the end of an era. It was the last great festival. I don't mind I was the uh, publicity director for the Isle of Wight Festival uh, at Freshwater and the previous event at Wooten, which starred Bob Dylan. Well, the Dylan event uh, brought in huge um, posses of, of the international press um, just from the fact that Bob Dylan and the band were brought to the Isle of Wight. I think at that time, once Bob Dylan had come to the Isle of Wight in 1969, it was really possible for anyone to have come, and I, and I think the promoters were making moves to get literally um, any group or individual and possibly most of them were considering it. Come gather round people wherever you roam Oh, the times they are a-changing It was an enormous thing and uh, built on the slogan Let Bob Dylan sink the island. Come mothers and fathers throughout the land Oh, the times they are a-changing probably knew there wasn't going to be another one, it was definitely going to be the last one. And I think from that point of view, yeah, it became historic. But it, it was almost selling into a nice routine where you could have a, a really good time as a youngster every year. You know, they'd sort of had them each year for three years or whatever. And it, you sort of thought, yeah, well, this could get really quite good, you know, it could go on forever. The line it is drawn, the curse it is cast, oh, the times they are a-changing. The Isle of Wight County Council made it quite clear that they did not want the event on the Isle of Wight. Every time a site was found that could have been suitable, um, injunctions were gained and the event was squeezed from one venue to another until finally, at quite a late stage, it was placed in Afton and that site was overlooked by National Trust um, land and as a result um, the event really wasn't viable. People obviously who arrived on the day without their tickets um, could go straight up onto the side of the hill, National Trust land, and watch the event without paying. This threw the event into um, some chaos from the beginning. It's fairly obvious that everyone who arrives on the day um, and who sees 
the fact that there's a, that there's a hill slope behind the event is going to sit on the side of the hill and have a, a grandstand view for nothing rather than paying for his ticket. That's where the authorities wanted the event and they knew why they wanted it there. They knew quite obviously that it could not be viable financially um, on such a site. David Spence and I had really the only places in the West White upon which the festival could be held. Freshwater people, I think, especially Freshwater Parish Council, didn't want it at Afton because of its close proximity to freshwater. We wanted it at Freshwater Parish Council, and our recommendations were to the um, full council um, that it should be at Churchill's Farm, which is further away from the more isolated. But that never happened. It, it came to East Afton Farm. You cannot manufacture legislation or couldn't at that time sufficiently to prevent it. If, if a landowner was willing to give his land for a festival, for a, there was nothing, I don't think, constitutionally that they could do about it. I think David Clark probably was very unpopular because he was one of the farmers that gave the land. If David hadn't given the land or if, if David Spence, who is now deceased, hadn't volunteered Churchill's, um, they probably couldn't have had it, you see. The NFU probably, and the landowners certainly, were trying to pressurise David in not providing the site. They built the most magnificent stadium uh, over an amount of land, which I suppose would have been 70 acres. Uh, and I think it was described at the time by one of their greatest enemies, who was Mark Woodnut, as a military operation. It was done very well. It was made of corrugated iron, and it, uh, it, it was twofold thick, and it, it did actually keep people out. The Afton site was designed with the two walls so that the shops, which were built into the wall, facing inwards and outwards, uh, could be supplied with the coke and the crisps and the other junk food that we were supplying to them for sale there, and for bringing back the money. And none of the other clergy would touch it with a barge pole, and uh, someone had to do something about it. So I was in there right from the beginning. And the largest tent in, in this was the one that the, uh, the Fuchs brothers had given to us, lent, lent to us for our church, right in the middle of this. In actual fact, it was the last to be put up. It was put up by Ron Smith. The thing that swayed me really was that one day a rather sort of uh, um, a slightly bewhiskered gentleman confronted me in a certain place and said well if you have the pop festival of course uh, you you will not any longer be part of the Isle of Wight establishment and you may indeed be sent to Coventry certainly you will not go to any cocktail party on the Isle of Wight that's worth going to they don't know I'm alone in the dark Even though time and time again I see your face smiling inside I'm so happy oh, that you love me oh, yeah. Life is lovely Tell me 
the 60s, I suppose, were the time of the hippies and the happenings. And one sort of remembers America. And this is Freshwater Parish on the Isle of Wight. And to have in excess of 50,000, 60,000 people at one time. It's not like the local football match where there's several hundred people. This is thousands of people. You know what the Isle of Wight is like? We're very parochial, aren't we? You know, I remember old Manly Power, I think it was from Yarmouth. And he was going to shoot them as they stepped off the ferry. And we said, look, Albert, you can't shoot them these days. You know, you're not allowed to shoot them. They're going to shoot them all, he said, as they step off. Wretched people going to the Isle of Wight. They were really up in arms about it. I think they thought the young people were coming over just to sort of wreck their houses, spoil the countryside. I think some of the older people obviously had fears of uh, the Isle of Wight being invaded by, say, 200,000 people who were going to sort of run riot all over the place. And... Uh, and I think some of the people in the areas of Sandin and Shanklin who had businesses were th going to think, well, this is going to be bad publicity for the Isle of Wight. This is the Garden Isle, not the Hippie Isle. About five of the old admirals and colonels that ran the Isle of Wight County Council in those days said it was a communist plot to subvert the youth of Great Britain. And if I remember rightly, the Daily Express headlines repeated that. It was dear Mr Woodnut, who's no longer with us, <laughs> who was uh, the main sort of instigator of that, I think, but uh, it was all the uh, all us long-haired youths that were doing no good, I suppose, that uh, put him off. Whereas I took the opposite line, that, uh, no, look, these are children, They're, they belong to us. Um, some of them live over the water, some live here, but wherever they live, they're our children, we can't cast them out like that. It'd be an act of Christian charity and brotherly love to get to, to, to welcome our people as we welcome the other tourists. These were people who'd come to our island and we should offer them the same hospitality. I don't think I've ever seen anything so degrading and I think one article said the rape of West White and I totally agree. A frightfully distorted uh, thing appeared in the Telegraph next morning about Vicar sporting hippies against scouts and so on. Um, didn't matter, but uh, it wasn't very honourable for a, a paper of that kind to have done it. I complained to them, but they didn't take any notice. was coming on for 500,000 at its peak and they were still queuing in London to come down on the trains and everything else. Thousands of young people arriving on the island um, by the ferries. Just seeing the area covered with people looking down onto that site and seeing that huge um, body of people gathered there. The overall uh, spectacle being a part of 200 and 50,000 plus, so we say, people um, on, on hot summer days, uh, which it was that weekend, enjoying the sort of finest uh, rock music available at the time from America and from uh, this country. My chief emotion through the whole thing was sheer terror because it was a job I obviously couldn't handle. Trying to have some influence within a body of two or three hundred thousand people but we were very worried that the gathering, the happening, would sort of come into Freshwater Village 
not not take it over, but what are you going to do with all these people with about ten shops in the village? And they, as it was, they were sort of wandering all over the countryside, even though they were very well behaved in the main. I thought they were quite well behaved. Everybody doubted, you see, the, the organising ability to hold something of this size. Vast amount of young people from all over the world. You know, it was quite an event, a major event to go across the Solent in those days. And I think that you saw people from Australia, met people from Canada, wherever. Friendships were made and it gave you a possibly a greater sort of perspective that there is life further up than Southampton. There was a lot of Canadians there from what I remember. And you'd be sat down, they'd come and talk to you, you'd sort of talk, have a drink together or whatever. And it, it, was, it was so friendly. When I arrived on the Sunday lunchtime at the festival, looking down um, and seeing half a million young people. I think that was an amazing experience. Every day I get In fact, we were worried. We were worried to know whether we could cope. But uh, all of the worries were not necessary because uh, there are tremendous crowds of people came here, all very, very well behaved. It, it went off tremendously well. Wednesday at Gruen and so on up until the actual weekend started. And Saturday uh, and Sunday, all hell was let loose. And I gave up, up counting after 144,000 and so many hundreds of accident passengers in the forward movement out to the field. Every day I get you to get on the bus that takes me to you. This is thousands of people, and probably in those days, all way out, man, and a bit freaky. Although they really weren't, actually. See, most of them came down in business suits, got changed at Yarmouth into the hippie outfit, and wandered up there and pretended they were way out, man, which they weren't really at all. They were ordinary people that freaked their hair out, put white sheets on, and dressed terribly badly, and, and, and thought they were having a wonderful time. Quite a few of us went from East Cows, but we all sort of lost each other when we got there. I could tell you exactly what I was wearing, my cowboy hat and my US state prison vest and an attempt at a beard, which was really not very clever either in those days, but hair probably just to my shoulders, jeans with, um, with the backside and the knees and everything ripped out that could be ripped out, big flared ones and sandals. And I looked, I looked the business, I can assure you. Flares and baseball boots and things like that and very flowery shirts. I even had a tie-dyed tent. Somebody gave him an orange t-shirt with Jimi Hendrix picture on the front and another person gave him a wig, a um, fairly hairy wig um, and he wore this all the time at the festival. There was uh, quite a lot of the atmosphere still from the 60s flower power uh, days there even though it was 1970. They actually held a flower in their hands and they meant peace man, they said it and they meant it. Let's have a welcome for Billy Cox on bass. There were so many names that that you didn't expect to be there, and suddenly people would turn up. It was that weird time span, though. Over the over the you know couple of days, it was you know it was just so difficult to concentrate for such a length of time. You didn't know who was coming on when and how long they were going to play. And I can remember staying up through the night listening to big name bands and desperately trying to stay awake. It wasn't the fact you didn't want to listen to them. You just after sort of so many days of being there, you couldn't stay awake any longer.
there were certain bands that I wanted to see especially and one of them uh, was Jimi Hendrix who I was a big fan of and who I'd seen once before and, and also there was a band called The Free who recorded All Right Now and it was the first time I'd seen them live and I was very impressed with them. Also uh, Jethro Tull, a band that are still going uh, today actually, uh, I was very impressed with their performance and of course uh, from America uh, there was Chicago and I think it was one of the first big performances they'd done in this country and uh, a lot of people including myself were very keen to see them. As I was walking down the street one day The Moody Blues, um, more than any of the bands, I think the, the sound they created live and the atmosphere while they played was tremendous I think. Um, it was just like listening to an album. They were, they were wonderful. I don't want to see the girl, but darling, you better go now. Most memorable for me probably was uh, Richie Havens, uh, Joni Mitchell maybe, and certainly Free. Um, and also the voices of East Harlem, who were seen there and never to be seen again. Never heard of them before, never heard of them since, but they were a remarkable bunch of tiny little coloured kids who came on, presumably from Harlem. Baez was excellent of course and Hendrix was just, it was the only time I ever saw Hendrix playing. Quite fantastic. I did see Miles Davis, yeah. Mitch Mitchell on drums. It was free. They were very big in them days and uh, I remember all right now at the festival because that sticks in the mind. It went on for about 20 minutes, 20 or 30 minutes. The instrumental version in the middle just went on and on and on. People were loving it. The overriding song that came through for me without any doubt was Freeze All Right Now. I mean, I can remember the whole sort of 200,000, whatever was there, just standing up as one and everyone was sort of singing and clapping the whole lot. I mean, just that one track stands out above all else and some of the Hendrix tracks, but particularly All Right Now. The man with the guitar, Jimi Hendrix. Oh, I mainly stayed awake and kept me head together really for Jimi Hendrix. It was just out of this world. Just seeing the man there doing all what you'd heard he did, you know, playing the guitar behind him. And people used to say he played with his teeth, but it was a, a nice a finger trick he did, but uh, it looked like he was playing with his teeth. And using all the feedback as uh, effects as well. 68 to 70 was really his prime. I was witnessing the last big performance by Jimi Hendrix. Talking of Jimi, Jimi Hendrix, I once walked into the arena and found my wife having a very, very cosy chat with Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> so many of those groups are important and legendary in their own names. Of the Who and Jimi Hendrix, Joan Bias, Leonard Cohen. I could have slept through James Taylor quite easily, I suspect. The Doors, probably because so so many people expected so much from them, that, that I don't think they could have lived up to the hype that came with them. And I think that's probably a fair reflection. They weren't that good. Hendrix's position in the history of rock music has been, in peculiarly enough, has been undervalued over the years. He never really fitted into any particular genre except that of late 60s guitar hero. He's never, his contribution has never been fully realized. Uh, there's a quote from Alan Douglas who runs the Hendrix estate, which was that uh, Hendrix founded a university from which no one else has yet graduated, uh, which I think is a very apposite comment. Um, plenty of people have tried to imitate him, but never really very successfully. 
And it's remarkable that so many people today, young people, still turn to Hendrix music as a source of enjoyment and inspiration, I suppose. And I think that contribution is the one that's been never fully appreciated. A bit more volume on this one, Charlie. It's going to need it. Joni Mitchell was another one of the sort of overriding memories for me because she was on stage at a grand piano, a big grand piano, and right in the middle of the crowd was one guy, 80 yards away from the stage, stood up singing his own thing, doing his own thing, who knows why or when, you know, he was just having a good time. And she actually stopped playing and refused to play any, any more until this guy was removed because she, she didn't come all this way to play to somebody who didn't appreciate her music. It was just the whole atmosphere of the thing. It was peace and love, you know, it was, it was everybody friendly with everybody else. It was the whole atmosphere. You had 24 hours a day music for sort of three days. Wherever, whenever you were awake, there was music. There was when you were asleep, but you didn't hear it because you had to sleep somewhere and you had to shut your eyes. But, uh, that, you know, without doubt, that was the magic of it. I lived on potatoes and beans, I think, and uh, roasted them in sort of fires and what have you. But uh, it was the local shops. It was places in freshwater and places like that, charging a pound a loaf. Well, that's extortionate even these days. So 20 years ago, you're talking, I don't know, maybe 15p for a loaf then, and they, they were going for a quid. But uh, if people had to pay at that, to pay if they wanted to survive, luckily, as I'd say, I lived on the island and uh, I managed to have supplies brought out to me. I don't think there was a Coke left anywhere Oh, way above London, there wasn't a tin of coke anywhere to be had. They'd all been bought up for the festival. The facilities at the site, unfortunately, uh, as far as food was concerned, uh, wasn't always adequate. It was in our laps to assist them to get uh, more stocks from the local cash and carry um, places on the island uh, and, and keep the stocks going that way. The actual supermarket was packed to capacity. You couldn't shop there. They were begging outside of the supermarket with their hats, pushing it under people's noses. Lots of the shop windows were smashed. But I, I will admit, some of the traders in Freshwater must have made a pot of money. The pub was packed from as soon as he opened in, um, the lunchtime sessions, all through the lunchtimes, and then he closed for the afternoon, and uh, as soon as he opened again in the evenings. The brewery uh, laid on special lorries to, to deliver the beer to us. Um, we were packed out. Why don't you all fade away? Don't try and dig what we all sensation. I'm trying to cause a big sensation. Just talking about my generation. There were a number of persons arrested, obviously. Um, and that totaled uh, 152. Uh, and of those, the, the vast majority were, were for drugs offences. Bearing in mind again that it was 20 years ago and, and you take a com comparable sort of gathering uh, today, then uh, I think we can be fairly sure that the crime figures would be, uh, would be vastly different. We had 119 people arrested for drugs offences. Now that may seem a very, very small number, and our um, my colleagues and, and the drug squad in particular were were particularly interested in those people that were dealing in drugs rather than the the person who was just uh, you know having a casual smoke uh, over the period of the festival. I can see from my 
with a gathering of that size, uh, invariably you are going to get some people who are there to make trouble. But uh, as I say, you know, bearing in mind the numbers of persons there, then the amount of trouble which we experienced was very minimal. Just the one person that was arrested for uh, having a prohibited weapon, um, which was a, you know, a type of gun, uh, and two other persons arrested for possession of offensive weapon. And, and basically that, that was the sum total, really. After a, an initial sort of cold shoulder, uh, as the festival progressed and they saw that uh, we were there and probably enjoying it as much as they were, some of our, our colleagues, um, you know, and we generally uh, felt that we could get in, in amongst these people and talk to them and, and let them see that we're only human after all, um, a good repartee was built up and, and I think that went a long, long way to... Uh, you know, allaying any sort of really serious trouble at the site. Yes, I enjoyed it, and I think most of my colleagues that were there, uh, as I say, although it was necessary for them to work long hours, um, to go without regular meals and, and do an awful lot of travelling for those that came from the mainland, uh, the general consensus of opinion was that uh, it was a good time was had by all. I didn't go on the site. But I do know that there was a lot of trouble. There were lots of fights. The, the dogs, they had guard dogs patrolling the site at night, Alsatian dogs. The French did knock down the outer wall facing, facing the downs, and there were fights. The residents living en route from the pop festival site to the village I don't think could get their cars out of their gardens or garages because it was just blocked, the roads were blocked with the hippies going to the village to get drink or food. Um, the actual supermarket was packed to capacity. You couldn't shop there. The elderly people could not get their old age pensions. They could not get into the post office. Every telephone booth was absolutely crammed with a queue outside. They ended up, I think, by breaking them. The local toilets were... Uh, indescribable and all the pipes were broken they were knocking at some elderly people's doors I do know and begging for food with a gathering of this size and, and we're talking uh, at its height uh, a number of uh, 250,000 people the amount of trouble which we experienced was very minimal good repartee was built up and, and I think that went a long, long way to, uh, you know, allaying any sort of really serious trouble at the site. The general consensus of opinion was that uh, it was a good time was had by all. I was involved with um, the security side of the affair out there. To see people opening and injecting themselves um, was quite shocking. It was very, very low-key, the way that the, the police operated out there with it. I saw another guy who was very, very badly, I would think, under the influence of some sort of drug, um, walk by a melon stand with a guy selling melons, and he just picked up the, the knife and he slashed both his arms very badly. And, hey, look at the colours, man. Which, uh, myself and another guy got, got him and put a tourniquet around him and took him off to the first aid tent. 
But to see things like that in open daylight with hundreds and thousands of people around just to do it, I mean, it's quite frightening. The girls seem to be so young. And I thought, how many of those young girls are going back, possibly pregnant or with some sexually transmitted disease? And what's their life going to be now? Um, possibly hooked on a drug, some drug or another, because you could smell it in the air. The pre-publicity, not by the organisers but by the media, was that we were going to be invaded by a lot of real drug addicts and louts and promiscuous people and uh, our daughters would be in danger, our sons would be in danger. It wasn't so. I saw things that, uh, that were pathetic. Amongst our near-door neighbours were release the drug people. We saw some of their experts trying to talk down youngsters on LSD trips and so on. As far as the promiscuity was concerned, obviously it was more about it than there is usually. But if you get a couple of hundred thousand people together, they're bound to be uh, variations in behaviour, there are bound to be some, some bad lots amongst them. If you had a couple of hundred thousand members of the Mother's Union, there would be some awful rotters amongst them. They were knocking at some elderly people's doors, I do know, and begging for food. Well, possibly the hippies, or I, I call them hippies, perhaps they were hungry, but it's frightening for somebody to open their door, seeing somebody with a beard and long hair, and say, we want food, man. Christ was involved with everybody, good, bad and indifference. We have people whose lifestyles are different and the church has got to identify with everybody. Um, it isn't right to, to take a whole swathe of people and say these are outside the pale. These were people who come to our island and we should offer them the same hospitality. Riders on the storm Riders of the storm Into this house we're born Into this world we're thrown Like a dog without a bone And actor out alone Riders on the storm about 7am and it looked like Custer's last stand. Uh, there was just bonfires everywhere, people sort of milling about just waking up. About 8 o'clock the vicar came in and wanted to give a sermon to the hordes of people that were there. There was various nationalities up on the hill uh, with all their sort of flags. It was Canadians, French Algerians, just many races that, that hadn't paid or couldn't get into the festival as there was too many in there already and all of a sudden they stormed the, the fences. The security guards run round with their dogs and they were just being pelted with cans of anything, stones, sticks, cans, the lot. This was all happening in the middle of the vicar's speech um, or his sermon to the, to the people. One of the promoters then got on the stage 
and announced that the festival was going to be a free festival and they pulled all the fences down to the tremendous cheers of all the people that were there. They uh, started to break the arena boundaries down and uh, they got caught on the hard side. A certain Hells Angels gang was been waiting for them and they enjoyed, enjoyed the little fight and that was the end of them. As regards Hells Angels, I don't think there was much evidence of Hells Angels uh, at the last Isle of Wight Festival. I think they had a little bit of trouble um, on the outskirts of the festival, maybe a few people trying to sort of break over the walls and come in without paying, but uh, nothing serious at all. I saw some um, swaggering around. Yes, there were some there. I had no evidence of my own that they did any damage. I don't think they did. I think they were like everybody else there. Everybody was play-acting all the time. You, you decided what role you were going to play, and you played it, and it was terrific fun. The organisers, because they, they knew I had horses, they phoned me up and said, would you be prepared to run a security um, a guard over the site? We're very worried that, that people will try to break the boundaries and, and, and uh, if you, we feel that if you rode around, you could control it. And I said, well, perhaps, yeah, but it would cost, you know, £40 per horse, you see, per day. They said, we can't afford that. Good job we didn't. My God, just imagine it. aren't going up horseback with a bit of a, an accent saying, look here, you chaps, would you, would you mind moving yourself? <laughs> they had to barbecue me and the horse. People's gardens were used as, as, as toilets. The, the village stream, going through the middle of Freshwater, that was used as a toilet. They were standing urinating in that really all day long, no matter where you walked, especially the pilgrims way at the bottom. That was an open sewer. One had to sort of walk away a bit. The awful noise, the number of people, and the awful mess they left when they, when they departed. It was indescribable. I can't describe the state of the, the roads and the actual grounds when they left. It was like a nightmare. The other bad thing that I remembered was the toilets. I think nobody had any idea how to cater for half a million young people wanting um, toilet facilities and they were appalling. The sheer filth of it I couldn't eat there, I was so hungry afterwards. <laughs> because, um, and, and yet we went into the posh food cafeteria on privileged tickets, so what it was like for the kids, I have no idea. The lavatories, oh dear. But my friend Douglas Quantrill, he said there were no danger at all because he'd been in Biafra and he knew, he knew what filth was. I thought that some of them might be longing for a bath, so I put a notice on my door saying if anyone would like a bath, and will give a donation to cancer research. They're very willing to use my bathroom. And many of them came and they left the bathroom spick and span. And I was only too pleased that I'd helped them in that little small way. It was at the end of the pop festival, they seemed to need a good wash, you know. The litter afterwards was out of this world. And everybody thought, my God, that land would be polluted forever. But within a year, you wouldn't even know. 
that there was a pop festival there. During the Sunday night, the organisers asked me if I would announce a scheme over the uh, tannoy from the stage, and there were 150 or 200,000 screaming youngsters in front. Can't see anything, of course. We were going to set up a scheme whereby anyone who could pick up uh, a bag full of waste could have enough money given to them by the organisers to get the boat home to the mainland. And that we would organise it in our tent with help from others. And um, then, of course, the other people in the crowd who hadn't been shouting out now began to shout and cheer. Yes, jolly good show. So we did this on a Monday, and we were there 12 hours. Um, and we had a, a table, and we were sitting there, and about five or six helpers had come to do it. We got a number of people who were uh, from the island who were bringing their cars in to take people back to ride, or cows. And we were asking for help for money to get those back who hadn't got any money, because quite a lot of people besides these French kids had lost their money. And um, we had something like £10,000 through our hands during the daytime. We, it came in at one end and went out at the other, you see. We didn't keep any accounts or anything. But we had enormously generous offerings. We had at least one flight back to New York, t a ticket, if anybody, we, ki we kept it until someone wanted, wanted it. And there were all sorts of emergencies that we were able to supply simply because a lot of the, the people were going home for the pop festival, they'd had a good time and they were emptying their small change or what money they got onto our table and it was passed down. That I thought was one of my greatest impressions. You've got to remember that it was August and traditionally um, there's not much going on in August in England apart from people being on holidays and the press have um, what's known as their silly season and obviously they're looking for as much as they can in an event like that which is going to attract readers and the human interest element. Um, but in the end I think if you look over the cuttings you'll see that the big story was in fact 250,000 people converged on the Isle of Wight and nothing really happened except that they listened to music. I think it was sort of um, manipulation of the media to a certain extent to ensure that it wouldn't happen again and I, su I suspect that a lot of people's memories again are quite clouded about their involvement. Obviously the, the press were looking for human interest stories for things going on locally um, for example, when, uh, when, when one of the fans went into the, the freshwater laundry and, uh, and uh, took off his clothes and put it into the um, spin dryers and washing machines, that became a, a good story. So everyone was looking for what they could get out of the event in terms of coverage. Remember that, that editors in, in, in London were anxious to get um, good juicy stories out of this event. Well, I knew a man, Bojangles, and he danced for you. And worn out shoes, silver hair, a ragged shirt, and baggy pants. <laughs> 
as a county press was, um, well, what it was at the time, um, possibly one of the last newspapers in Europe to take announcements off its front page, births and deaths. But um, we could not use it in any way to present a realistic picture of the event. The county press was the only source of information for a lot of the Isle of Wight residents. But at that time, um, a lot of residents got all their opinions and ideas and, and news about what was going on in the island from the Isle of Wight County Press. So um, it was strange that the, in handling the press, the, the least dealings we had were in fact with the County Press. Uh, no reporters were, were in contact with us. They um, would not cover the event realistically and um, their, their views were entirely clouded and coloured by the, um, the, the, the council authorities who were so vehemently against the um, event. This was an event not just being um, covered here locally and, and nationally, it was covered internationally through the wire services. very much vested interests, people who own land, own property, and, and they weren't for once in their lives making money out of it. The people made, if any money was ever made out of it, and that obviously is a debatable question, but it must have been. But the people who actually made money for once in their lifetime were normal, off-the-street kids, people who'd come from ordinary backgrounds. They weren't, they weren't sort of landowners, they weren't well-heeled, they were just ordinary people who had the, enough sort of foresight to put this thing together and I think from that point of view I thought that was great and uh, I just suspect that you know it, it could never happen again. A lot of people were worried but a lot of people were thankful after the week with the amount of money they had made and uh, hopefully I was hoping to do the next one until the act came in and that was the end of that. I got my wages for the week and a certain amount was taken over the bar roughly I think about Forty to forty-five thousand pounds of bar takings in those days, which was a lot of money twenty odd years ago. Though the promoters went bankrupt, I believe. People obviously who arrived on the day without their tickets um, could go straight up onto the side of the hill, National Trust land, and watch the event without paying. So obviously this this threw the event into um, some chaos from the beginning. A bit more volume on this one, Charlie. It's going to need it. The money was brought back in cardboard boxes. Such was the take of these shops. They didn't have time to do anything else but stuff it into cardboard boxes. And we had a small 500-weight van collecting the money and taking it back to the huge marquee that we had there, which was a supply tent. Inside that was the um, porter cabin, which housed six people, to my recollection, who spent from early morning till late at night, counting money and stacking it in cardboard boxes again. There was cardboard boxes to the ceiling. There was hardly room to move in there for cardboard boxes of money, which was counted into wads, and there was cardboard boxes full of money, which was loose and which had just been stuffed in. Um, never in my life have I seen such money, before then or after and uh, 
the best of my recollection, we estimated that it must have been well over a million pounds, a million and a quarter uh, pounds was in that porter cabin at any one time. I've known the fags since they were about, right since he was about 16 and runny, since about 18, 19. I was a bit disgusted the way they uh, went into hibernation, as you would say, at the end of the Afton one. They never showed their face at the site after the event and um, it was very difficult to, to even get into uh, Inglefield to speak to them. They seemed to be paralysed by the magnitude of the event and the thoughts that um, a large amount of money had gone missing. Some of them wanted uh, the payment before they went on. Others were not particularly concerned. They were just excited to be in such a, a, an amazing event. I will admit some of the traders in Freshwater must have made a pot of money. But and others closed the pubs up and they just wouldn't open the doors to them. I think Stan Plumley down the Ironmongers, Stan had, had things in his attic for about 70 years that he flogged to them, you know, old matches and lanterns and God knows what he had up there. And I can see old Stan creeping up his ladder now, pulling the candles, and you'd be surprised. It was like Aladdin's cave, and he emptied that, I think. And Dave Willis, who was a grocer in the village, every can disappeared from the place. I mean, sold, you know, cans of, of thing. Because you, you've got to remember, when they come, these wild, happening people, and, and they get there, there's, there's nothing there, you see, really, is there? There's an open field and a sleeping bag. And there was nothing... They, they were slightly, shall we say under-catered for. Ricky and, and uh, Ray handled the booking and liaising with the groups themselves. I would liaise with the group's publicity or press officers to make sure that they uh, gave us the right kind of information that they weren't publicised. The contracts signed with the groups um, gave the groups the, the, the recording rights. So obviously what was taped um, really was up to the, the groups and their management. So if we didn't have albums or, or releases coming from their performances, it was because of their management. I think parts of the event were, were, were filmed and obviously there were a lot of people um, who did take footage, but uh, as such there was no um, real footage of the, the event. Um, Obviously, um, stories abound, but um, uh, as far as I know, no film was ever made, and had it been made, I think we would have seen it by now. We'd known that the film existed for several years, because as far back as 1972, a couple of numbers from it appeared in a previous Jimi Hendrix documentary um, directed by Joe Boyd, after which nothing more was heard about it, or indeed the director Murray Lerner. But a couple of years ago, because I was working with the Jimi Hendrix estate, they told me that they contacted Murray Lerner and they were in the process of doing a deal whereby the estate and Murray Lerner would re-edit the Hendrix footage, uh, redub the sound and totally redo the whole thing, with a view to putting it out as a, pro a probable video release. I suspect that because of the 20th anniversary of Hendrix's death coming up, the plan was to release it in some form anyway, but the initial plan and the plan as it was going to be was simply that it was going to be on home video. But because it 
I found out that the uh, the final editing, editing of the film would coincide with the festival at the National Film Theatre. Uh, I asked them if it was possible for us to have a, a theatrical print to show at the festival. Uh, they agreed, thinking obviously it was a very good idea, and we're showing it on September the 18th, the anniversary of his death. And uh, we are very lucky in that we were able to obtain for the festival the world premiere of Jimmy Plays the Isle of Wight Festival. The three young men who started these pop festivals were all under 21. They call themselves the Fiery Creations. I think that Ronnie Falco, Fiery Creations, whatever, will, will always have his name in Isle of Wight history because he created it. Probably he was into music in a little way, perhaps, and he wanted something bigger. I think in his wildest dreams, he didn't expect it to be what it was. On reflection, it, it's part of the history of the Isle of Wight. I think the... Um Last performance of Jimi Hendrix, uh, now that I look back, I, I was witnessing the last big performance by Jimi Hendrix. And, and so, you know, it's, it's a thing to look back on and think, say, well, I was there. A once in a lifetime thing. Um, you, you read about these things in the newspapers and, and, and see uh, news clips on televisions of, of it happening elsewhere in the country. Um, uh, and indeed abroad in the States and places like that. We think of places like Woodstock and those sort of places. but. You know, for it to be on the island and, and a gathering of, of that size, 250,000 people, um, you know, it's seeing is believing, really. It's, it's good to talk about it 20 years on, but it's one of those things where you've got to be there at the time and, and see the amount of people there and, and the sheer amount of canvas as far as tents and that sort of thing is concerned uh, to, to really sort of believe that it's taking place. Ray's elder by about a year and a half, I think, and Ronnie, they're two very enterprising young men and uh, wonderful at organising things. And they, they started a very, very small pop festival to see how it would work in 1968. And from then on, they decided to really go ahead and make these two pop festivals um, a lasting memory for everybody, not only on the Isle of Wight, but in the whole world. I found them honourable, honest. They kept every promise they had made. And I think they were so dead tired they had taken on a stupendous production. Perhaps, had they been older and wiser, they would have fined it down a bit and, and realised what you couldn't do. But uh, they didn't, I mean, uh, and so it was a spontaneous and therefore chaotic experience, and all the better for that, really. The philosophy of the 60s was make love, not war. God knows what the philosophies of the, of the 80s would be. Let's war all the time, you know, I mean, with, with the violence that's around today, I wouldn't like to hold one. Rather like they remember Woodstock, they will remember the other white pop festival. They talk about swinging 60s and various other terms that were used, but I think, yeah, it did change when you sort of going out on a Saturday night to the, to the tunes of Scott McKenzie, San Francisco, and wear a flower in your hair and all sort of, th you know, crazy things like that. That definitely changed. And the last one, probably more so than the others, because you knew the writing was on the wall that there wasn't going to be another one. It was definitely going to be the last one. It was just the whole atmosphere of the thing. It was all peace and love, you know. It was it was everybody friendly with everybody else. It was the whole atmosphere. You had 24 hours a day music for sort of three days. Wherever, Whenever you were awake, there was music. There was when you were asleep, but you didn't hear it because you had to sleep somewhere. You had to shut your eyes, but uh, 
that, you know, without doubt, that was the magic of it. On the whole, the influence had been very, very good. There was a lot of things that were wrong. There was a lot of dirt, there was a lot of danger, there was a lot of stealing, there were kids being exploited. And probably it was a very civilised event. But on the other hand, there was a great deal of comradeship, of, of um, affection, of trust. I found it an uplifting rather than a degrading experience. Mark Woodnut, his Isle of Wight act killed effectively everything of that nature. I think the Isle of Wight festival, at least in terms of Great Britain, was the end of an era. It was really the last major festival of that sort. Um, festivals, although they continued, I mean, there were several more in the early 70s, uh, tended to be lower-key affairs. And the festivals that really reflected what was happening in the 60s music with major names like Hendrix or Bob Dylan or The Doors or The Airplane or whoever seemed very much a product of that era. And I think for many people, the Isle of Wight simply uh, reflects the end of that period. It is only a weekend. Mostly the crowds were well-behaved. And in retrospect, it is such an historic occasion that I think maybe a little more tolerance 20 years on wouldn't go amiss. I think it was an important occasion. I think maybe... Maybe the Isle of Wight should be proud that these things happened and that they are in some small way part of history. I don't mind So much happened here 20 years ago, we'll never know the whole story. And that's because there are hundreds of thousands of stories. For every tent pitched here on Afton Down, there's a memory somewhere in the world of a trip to the Isle of Wight. Maybe it's a little hazy now. Maybe the unpleasant bits have been glossed over by the knowledge that they can say, I was there. I saw Hendrix play for the last time. If you lived on the island in 1970, you'll never forget the pop festival's effect. It may have seemed at the time that the island would never recover. But it survived. And 20 years on, we can all look back and say it was part of the island's history. We may never know completely what happened at the Isle of Wight Pop Festival, but we know it happened because it happened here. There's a bit of uh, culture for you, a bit of culture. Remembering the last great festival, Peter Harrigan, Reverend Bowyer, Mike Greenwood, David Clark, Lionel Osman, Ron Smith, Carol Bray, Jean Ainsworth, Keith Blaney, Doug Watson, Gary Batchelor, Don Howe, John Platt, PC Pointer, Jock Campbell, John Webster and Judy Gascoigne. Written and produced by Flo Rogers, David Kermode, Paul Seed and Barnaby Kirk. <laughs>